This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Weighted student funding. Weighted student funding. Few education reforms travel under a more abstruse academic moniker. Weighted student funding. It sounds like an advertisement for obesity. Why should we pay students by their weight? But weighted student funding is becoming one of the country's most popular education reform strategies. More children are attending schools in districts that have adopted some form of weighted school funding than are going to charter schools. At last count, about 8% of students were attending schools with a weighted student funding policy. But what is it? To explain weighted student funding and to make a case for the policy, I have with me today Marguerite Rosa, Director of Edunomics Lab and Research Professor at Georgetown University, and an author of a recently released a study of the implementation of this policy reform across the United States. Marguerite, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Well, thank you for having me. Well, Marguerite, uh, what could you what could could you please explain? Uh, to our listeners, what is meant by weighted student funding? You're, you're making me realize that maybe we should hire a marketing person to kind of redefine the name of this uh, school district allocation policy because, yeah, it did sound very uh, technical and uninteresting the way we sort of put it on there. But um, uh, I would say, year, well, most school districts, school districts, as you know, get all this money that comes in from the federal government and more of it from state and local sources. And what the district does, the school district, is decide how to divvy that money up across schools. And many of them use a staffing formula. So by that, I mean, they say each school gets one principal plus a vice principal for every 300 students, plus a counselor for every 200 high school students and so on, or something like that. Um, one teacher for every 25 kids, et cetera. But some districts are now implementing this thing called weighted student funding, and it has lots of different names, but none of them are any better than that one. Um, and what that is doing is saying, the district gets the money, and instead of saying doling out staff, I'm gonna actually dole out dollars. For each student you have, I'll give you $6,000. If your student has extra needs like English language learner or a student in um, uh, living in poverty or with a disability, then you'll get an extra allocation, like an extra $2,000 per student for an English language learner. And the dollars go out to schools and then it's the schools that determine the mix of staff that they wanna have. If it's uh, gonna be you know, two vice principals or one vice principal and more counselors or more teachers or whatever. So. The weighted part of it refers to um, the fact that higher need students come with additional dollar weights or dollar amounts. Um, it's also been called student-based allocation um, and other student-based budgeting and things like that. And and I would say it's a it's a new and newer and growing practice in mostly large school districts um, around the country. I'd say it's about 20 years old. But um, it's large districts like uh, New York City, Atlanta, Chicago, Houston, uh, San Francisco, Denver, Boston, 
um, and some Indianapolis, Nashville, places like that that are implementing this model? Well, it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, but uh, how do you deal with the teachers? Because if you have an experienced teacher that's got a master's degree, uh, he or she could uh, be receiving a salary that's nearly double that of a beginning teacher with just a BA degree. So how, do you get two beginning teachers for every one experienced teacher under this system? Well, I think it, it, in theory, if the model's implemented in a pure way, then you know you get your dollars and then you've got to decide where you make trade-offs to afford everything that you want to purchase. But most districts that have implemented this have had a tr have had trouble with exactly what you're saying. And just to back it up a little bit, people will know that um, if a school district under the traditional staffing model is um, has one school where we have very senior teachers, they're very expensive because a senior teacher can be twice the cost of a junior teacher. We see that oftentimes. And um, uh, and then, so if a school is filled with senior teachers, the district is actually spending a lot more on that school than a school maybe on the other side of the district with very junior teachers. And um, frustratingly, teacher seniority hasn't been random. It's been oftentimes tilted toward more advantaged schools, which has raised equity concerns in school districts. Why are you spending so much more on your more affluent schools and they say well we are having they have higher salaries and and then there's a lot of frustration well those are public dollars and by tying them up in the salaries on one side of the district they're not available to spend on the other side of the district where we have predominantly low-income kids so that's been a frustrating problem already weighted student formula doesn't necessarily address that problem it depends on whether or not the school district holds each school to, to forcing them to spend using the actual salaries of the teachers, you know, within their limits using those actual salaries. And because that was going to be quite redistributive under for many districts, a lot of them are saying, don't worry about the actual salaries. If you purchase a teacher that turns out to be $100,000 because it's a senior one, the district's only going to charge you the average salary, let's say that sixty-five thousand. Um, if you if you hire a junior teacher, maybe at fifty thousand, the district's still going to charge you that sixty-five. So there, so many of these districts that we mentioned are still still not quite implementing the pure model. They're kind of doing a um, a rinse over on the salary part of that. Not all of them. Denver and Boston. Um, uh, and, and a few others have either pilot or modified programs where some schools are operating on their real salaries. And that means if you, if you decided that you, you have all senior teachers, well, then, you, then you, there has to be some give, right? Maybe you don't get a vice principal and maybe you don't need one because you have all these senior teachers. So maybe they ought to have more experience in the building and not, you know, not need as much supervision or send their kids down to the vice principal's office. Or maybe they teach larger classes. Um, and that would be a way of addressing that. Although, like I mentioned, many of them have, um, have not tackled that piece of the puzzle through the use of the- Yeah, that's my, that's my sense of it, is that most of the districts that have gone to weighted student funding have kept this 
well, we'll charge everybody the average teacher salary, no matter how much the teacher is actually getting. And uh, to you know, many of them plan to phase the real salaries in. It just becomes, you know, next year, next year, next year. Yes, yes. So, but now, when the school um, has so much money tied up in teacher salaries, and if they do just, as we said, then is this how much money is left after that? Because isn't salaries just the name of the game? Well, it is salaries, but um, I think part of the issue here is that, and we did this study, we went around and asked a bunch of principals, how much money is spent on the kids in your school? And many principals in districts will say, um, in my school, maybe $42,000. And then we'll say, no, no, it's not 42,000. Your own salary is higher than that. So all the money spent on your kids. And then they go, oh, I thought you meant, I didn't know you were talking about people too. I was talking about the dollars we get from the district. And the problem I think is in a traditional district, they don't think, the people inside schools don't think that all the labor is money. Um, because the only dollar figure they see is the supply budget or the field trip budget or something like $42,000. And their own salaries and the salaries of the teacher and the salaries of the counselor and the salaries of the librarian and the vice principal, those are sort of, they never have visibility into that as money. And then they don't treat it like money. So they spend an enormous amount of time on that $42,000 field trip but, but, you know, budget, trying to squeeze every last dollar out of that. And they're not paying attention to the fact that the $85,000 librarian down the hall isn't really contributing to the learning of their kids. Or you know maybe they are, but I'm saying the focus is almost on the wrong thing. So part of what, what Way to Student Formula is doing is giving the money to schools so they have transparency in it. We have equity and transparency that we know why each school gets the amount of money they have and how much it is. And then they are, then maybe they're making some modest trade-offs between vice principals and librarians and teachers and aides and stipends and things like that. But like you said, many of them are on the margin, but there's still, um, there's still decisions that the school owns and has visibility into. And the idea there is then maybe the school treats all that like money, like it's it's really of high value and manages it differently toward the benefit of their students. Well, a very talented principal has a good feel for numbers and budgets and how you could change, uh, you know, salaries into something else uh, can really make this effective. And, and I'm sure there are many fine principals out there that do that. But at the same time, I can imagine some principals get overwhelmed by all this responsibility to think up in a more comprehensive way about the resources available to them. And they, they may be, you know, at least they need a lot of training in order to begin to think like this. So I've heard principals actually say that uh, it worked very well in, in my case, but there were other principals out there who found this very challenging. So, do you have any thoughts on that problem? So I, I think what you're pointing out is that we're, we're not really preparing principals to, to operate in this model. That's for sure. I mean, the fact that a principal in other districts could say we spend $43,000 on my school is evidence that they've not sort of come up in a pipeline to be able to realize that I'm, I'm actually managing an $11 million budget here. And um, so that's true. However, 
um, our finding from doing a lot of interviews with, with principals is that even if they're in a district that doesn't have this decision-making authority involved in it, they, they want it. You know, they, they want to weigh in on whether or not if they got an extra, you know, $90,000 at their school, whether or not they should hire a new position or use that as stipends or do something else. They want to weigh in on this and they want to know more about that. I think the other piece of this is that mo many principals, um, when they transition to one of these models, pretty much leave their staffing the same, right? It comes pre-populate, their budget comes pre-populated from the district with their staff from last year and their money. And, oh, look at that, you know, you, you got uh, $6,000 more this year than last year. So it's really, the mo for most of them, they're gonna leave their budget intact and, um, and then make modest changes for year to year as they build the skills to understand this. It's not like they suddenly need to turn into accountants. Um, that, that that isn't the ask on that. But the visibility into it and the sort of, you know, awareness of how and why they get the money that they get, that it's actually tied to students, is um, I think the idea behind um, uh, the, the logic of it, which is that will increase the functioning of the school to have more people at the school understand how the money works. Well, do you find that the school districts that adopt uh, a weighted student funding approach are the same districts that tend to give uh, choice to families among schools within the district. So it's sort of like a portfolio district like in Denver or I think Boston and New York City have something similar. So there's a there's sort of a competition for students by principals. So, so we, we didn't um, find that correlation and I'm aware of the high profile ones you've mentioned. Um, when we asked districts why they implemented this, not one said because of choice, not to promote choice or support choice or enhance choice. They actually listed equity and flexibility as their top reasons. I mean, not, not even one said choice. So they were saying all our schools thought they were being unfairly treated. You know, when 100% when of your schools think they're getting the short end of the stick, then they're obviously done a visibility into how the resources are divvied up. Um, so they did it as a way to be transparent and equitable. And also because some schools were saying, your staffing model makes sense for that school over there. That's not what we need though. Well, you know, you, you hired us a reading coach and I have an attendance problem. So I need to deal with things that get attendance up or my school, you know, doesn't need an attendance coach. What we have is lousy reading instruction. And they were, they were asking, different schools were asking for different things. So it was either the equity piece of this or the flexibility piece of this that seemed to be driving it. But now, if you uh, have this approach of student-weighted funding, principal has all control of all the resources, doesn't that give the principal incentives to do as the principal does where my daughter's children are going to school in New York City to go out and raise money from the local community and from the parents so that additional services can be provided uh, with uh, funds raised from within the school. So I, I think that um, you had mentioned that when we talked earlier, but I, I, we're not seeing that in part because in um, weighted student formula districts, the, the school doesn't actually control the bank account. It's, it's still the district's bank account. 
They say, here's how much money you have. They pencil up a budget, send it back, maybe in a spreadsheet. The district is still managing the dollars. They're in the district's bank account. So um, if a school is going to raise money locally from parents or whatever, it's no different than in a, a staffing-based model. They can go raise money from parents. That money doesn't go through the district. That money is, is, is separate and on the side. And so I don't think the incentives around raising money from auctions and so on are, are very different. One thing I want to point out, and we, we talk about this in our, our, this always comes up the very first day in our certificate in education finance program that we offer at Georgetown, is people will say it's the private money that's driving all the inequities. And um, they won't have a sense of how big that is relative to the public money. And we go through this, well, the public money is an average of $14,000 per pupil. So if you can raise $550 or $100 per student at an auction, which would be a, a, a healthy auction, right? $100 per student. I'm a, a parent of four kids. If I had gone to the auction, that would have been sort of, I, I donated $400. And I certainly was never that generous. So if that is the... Um, so if you had 50 or $100, that's still dwarfed by the $14,000 that is in public dollars expended. But it's one that often gets a lot of that visibility. So I, I don't think this really changes schools' relationship with private money. So you don't think that's a, a, a way of, of getting, and you know, I don't think it's the dollar figure so much as it is creating a sense that this is our school. So that if a, if a school has this autonomy to make, to allocate these resources, then the principal's ultimately responsible, but if the principal is effective, they can make that a, a school uh, project. Uh, doesn't the school have more of a sense that this is their school and not something that belongs to bureaucrats elsewhere? I think I think that is the factor at play, not so much with the private money that comes from parents, because remember, either if you're that money isn't going to go or turn around and pay for stock because the, the district the school in a way to student formula model can't pay for staff with private dollars. That money would have to go to the district and then the district's writing the checks for the, the teachers. So um, but the autonomy piece, I think, is, is really important here, because if the the principal has visibility that we're spending $85,000 on a librarian. And every time I look down the hall, this is a real example from um, one of the trainings that we did, a principal was saying, I never really thought about that as a monetary resource. I never thought about that as money we were investing in our students. I thought about it as the person we got from the district to run the library. And so we would have that person do hallway duty and they'd run to the grocery store before we had a staff birthday party and pick up a cake. And, we would, um, they do book talks and things like that. And suddenly I started seeing this as $85,000 and our reading scores were low. And I suddenly turned to the librarian and said, it's not okay to be using your time doing hallway duty or running, you know, even book talks. You need to help us move the needle on these reading scores. These kids need to be reading and, and we're paying for this $85,000 for a reading position. So roll up your sleeves and, sleeves and help us figure this out. And that I think is that ownership over over these investments is is part of what um, I think these districts are trying to trigger. Now, how much uh, autonomy do the principals actually have under this? And I know it varies from school district to school district. There's no one answer to this, but 
can they, if they can find that they can purchase uh, services or supplies uh, one place for less than another, do they have that flexibility or do they just have to go to the central office and central office says, this is what you have to pay? It depends on the district. What you can't do is set your own salaries. <laughs> so for staff, I mean, I don't, we don't really, most of them, you can't do that. Um, but you can use your stipend money to pay people extra to take on more work. So you could say, hey, could you teach more students? I can pay you extra with the stipend dollars I have. So you can affect people's earnings. You can give them extra duties after school or just pick up more responsibilities. And many of them do that. Um, and you can make trades between your staff, right? You can hire a vice principal or not hire a vice principal and instead do, you know, a teacher and a, um, an aide or something like that. And you decide, do I want a librarian or do I, I want to just have an aide in the, in the library and I'm going to actually invest in a reading coach. Um, now, when it comes to services, places like Chicago um, had given greater leeway on some services, but we're not seeing a whole lot of, of um, energy around the services as much as we are in the thinking around the staffing. And remember, the staffing is like 90% of the money. Um, so when you look at the services, you might be thinking, oh, I can hire um, some kind of provider to come in and um, uh, do a presentation for the kids. That's the kind of stuff that the, so often the principal does. The principal generally doesn't manage the facility. So the roof needs to be replaced or they need to do um, construction on the gym. Those are kinds of things are still happening through the district. And that's often where district services come in. But a, a school could invest some money in um, a certain kind of professional development training or things like that. And those flexibilities depend on the district. So what do you see as the future of this? Are we going to see more resources included under the funding formula and less uh, constraints placed on the principles or, or, or have we maxed out? Well, I mean, this is a really good question because if we hadn't just had a pandemic, I would say, oh, this decentralization, financial decentralization trend is for sure going to continue to grow. Um, and that's partly because the federal government passed a law that said we're now going to share out how much money went to each and every school. And that's making um, this connection between the individual school and the dollars. That data just, those data just came out in June. So it's very new. And people are starting to go, oh my gosh, this school gets more money than I do. And then they're arguing with the district, why, are, why is your funding so unfair? And the district, you know, weighted student formula is a great way for a district to implement a fair and equitable way of dividing up its resources. So I think that pressure was going to come. And I do think that the schools were going to say, well, if that one gets to use their resources this way, I would like to use that flexibility too. So I think there was going to be more and more of this. And there's been some more research that um, spend, locating spending decisions at the school level alongside clear outcomes for uh, expectations for students was you know, um, driving some productivity. And that was an NBER um, study of school management. But then the pandemic hit. And the thing about the pandemic is it's really prompted a centralizing of decision-making in districts. And it's also really upset their finances. 
And um, so we're, they're, they're not saying to their schools, do what you need to do to reopen schools or make decisions that work for your staff or figuring out what your community needs. If you need to have class in the parking lot or in the gym, go for it. We trust you guys to figure it out. They're saying, no, we're gonna do one size fits all because it's a pandemic. And, that, and you, you kind of have this more centralizing thing going on. And this is really, you know, way to student formula is a real decentralized play where you're thinking the, the best way to make decisions about how to deliver services is kind of at the school. And the pandemic seemed to have just rolled those back to the district in many places. Um, add to that, and we've seen this in Chicago and other places that some schools lost a bunch of kids and they're thinking, how am I going to survive next year? The district needs to hold me harmless um, on my finances. It's not my fault we had a pandemic and lost all these kids. But if the district holds them harmless, they've got to take that money away from another school, which is now a new recentralizing play on all of this. So I don't know. I mean, we're, we're at the same time, there's a lot of forces going on. I mean, I think there are parents in some districts that are saying, huh, I just looked up and my school gets this many dollars per kid and I'm barely getting any service. My kids, you know, at third grade at home on Zoom all day long. That doesn't seem like what they used to have access to. So I'd like to take that money as mine and see what we can do with it. So there's a lot of pressures going on in the finance puzzle right now. And I keep saying my crystal ball is on back order from Amazon, but I'm not sure how all this shakes out. Well, so, but then there is the seniority question, because if a principal can't control the teaching staff of the school, how can the principal be responsible for the outcomes? Uh, and a lot of districts are saying that uh, your seniority determines uh, whether or not you're going to have a chance to teach at a particular school. What the principal thinks has nothing to do with it. So is, is there any hint that uh, weighted student funding could bring about a much more uh, principal-friendly allocation of uh, the teaching staff? I mean, I think that I would say that is um, part of the idea, is that right now, if the district goes and negotiates maybe a big raise for the senior teachers, um, no one complaints, right? That that was, we could use the money over here instead or over here instead. But if you go do that and now a principal says, oh my gosh, I already have senior teachers and you just gave a raise to my senior teachers. Now I'm going to have to make cuts in my school in order to afford that. Then maybe you'll have principals pushing back on the district from the bottom up on some of these kinds of decisions. And, um, and, and it, it might be from the unlikely um, characters. So if you're a principal with a bunch of senior teachers, right now you're sitting back going, this is great. I don't have any turnover in my teaching staff. I did a training 10 years ago. They're all still here. They all remember it. I don't even have to redo the training next year. All my teachers know my students. They're, they know their parents. They know their siblings. This community is just running super smoothly. Well, that's great, except that money that's being spent on that is coming at the expense of spending that money on a school potentially on the other side of the district where there's a revolving door they can't retain or attract 
or retain teachers and um, the teachers are all brand new and um, they're all um, you know missed didn't have the training last year because they weren't there they don't know the kids there's not they can't even mentor each other or anything and they their money that's that's supposed to be out there on behalf of their kids is tied up on the other side of the district so I think um, we would normally have expected these the schools that are shortchanged right now to be the ones complaining, um, but they're also often in over their head in terms of other things. But if now the financial, like we're going to pay your senior teachers more, meant the more um, the schools with more senior teachers had to make a cut somewhere else to afford that, it may be those ones that would chime in and say, actually, that money would be better spent left flexible and let us, you know, choose where, where to raise salaries or, or, or what have you. Well, Marguerite, this is fascinating. Um, I want to ask you one last question. Has anybody ever studied whether or not this reform has had a positive effect on student learning? I mean, it, it, it's an idea that's been out there for 20 years, as you said, is there any evidence that that's that the school district is more effective after it's gone to uh, student-weighted formulas? Well, our, um, we, we got a, a study from IES, the Federal Institute of Education Sciences, and a part of that um, money went to um, Bethany Gross at the Center on Reinventing Public Education. And she and her team led that study. And so just to point out, this is, a, a tough study to do because at the time um, there were 18 districts that had longitudinal data long enough to be able to study uh, weighted student funding and that's not a very big sample size and some of those districts are are um, unlike any other in the country I'm thinking like New York City and um, in you know just states districts are in different states they have different data they have different other you know conditions going on some have strikes, some have, you know, uh, lots of other factors at play. Um, but her research was um, cautiously optimistic, I would say, that the findings suggest um, that the, dis the districts that were using weighted student formula were seeing um, growth for their students or positive outcomes for their students. Um, not, they did not find that the gaps were closing um, between kids of different races and things like that, but they did see, they were um, optimistic that the, the way to student formula districts were seeing overall improvements in their student outcomes, not causal. And I would say, I would suggest to anyone read her language, uh, read Bethany's language to make sure um, that I had it right, but that's where we are on this. And I think that is promising. You know, there's a lot more research that needs to be done, but um, in the world of education finance, I think we can all agree that we um, are all trying to figure out what will help make money matter more. So how do we, how do we always, at, whether we're getting a, um, a positive link between spending and outcomes or not, we, we still would like it to be more positive or more robust relationship. And if weighted student formula is a, a possibility, we should pursue it and learn how come and why and under what conditions and so on. Well, that's a good summary. And thank you very much, Marguerite, for sharing with me your in-depth research on uh, student-weighted 
uh, funding or weighted student funding, uh, I am hopeful that someday we will have a term that I can that will trip off my tongue uh, neatly and quickly. Uh, and I'm sure that's going to come down down the pike pretty soon. So thank you. that, or you can just like maybe get a tattoo of it. Wait, is student funding on, on well, there? It, it, it's going to be it's going to be a three letter word, right? It's going to be WSF or something like that. I'm sure. Yes, I am. Well, I will <laughs> say if any any anyone's super interested in education finance generally, come join us in our. Our, um, our certificate program at Georgetown because we dig into all of this and more. And I would say that the world of education finance is quite lively and fun. So if you made it to the end of this podcast, we'd love to have you in our program. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me today on the Education Exchange. I have been speaking with Marguerite Rosa, director of the Edunomics Lab and a research professor at Georgetown University, author of a new publication that documents the increasingly widespread use of weighted student formulas for allocating funds to schools within districts. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern Time. Thank you for joining me.